the show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety, twists, endings, and all, without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. Hello, I'm Paul Tyler and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books and TV shows in their entirety. This week, we're taking a look at George Miller's 2015 action movie, Mad Max Fury Road. And if you've not seen it yet, here's one final warning. We will be talking about the whole of the plot. We will ruin it for you. So if you've not seen it, go away, watch it now and then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right, on with the show. My name is Max. That's my name. 2015's Mad Max Fury Road should have been filmed a lot earlier. George Miller had the idea of violence and fighting over humans rather than gasoline in 1998. Shooting was scheduled for 2001, but with the September the 11th having an adverse effect on the American dollar, budgets proved unattainable. I can't wait for them to see it. See? Say what? With Miller moving on to Happy Feet, the film had to be shelved. But shelved it was and not binned, although the idea of casting Mel Gibson was thrown in the trash due to various controversies surrounding the actor. The bankable Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron were cast as Max and Imperator Furiosa. You've done this before? Many times. Furiosa has taken it upon herself to rescue the imprisoned wives of Immortan Joe, the evil overlord who withholds water from the masses and trades with bullet farmers. A high-octane chase ensues, with the escapees on a war rig, Mad Max and a stowaway warboy being chased down by the bad guys, including V8 monster trucks with flamethrowers and the always-necessary drummers and a twin-necked heavy metal guitarist that's on a rig of amplifiers that would only exist if Iron Maiden, Metallica, Status Quo and Slayer combined their tour gear and multiplied it by a hundred. And if that's not enough, the twin neck guitar has a flamethrower attached. Of course it does. Will they make it back to Furiosa's homeland? Does it even matter? In a post-apocalyptic world, and you can argue between yourselves as to whether people, or anything for that matter, survives after an apocalypse, in a post-apocalyptic world, it's really about the costumes, the scenery, the invention, and above all, the action. And boy, is there action. So, was it worth the reboot? Ten Oscar nominations, almost universal critical acclaim, and millions of bums on seats would suggest so, and tell us to prepare for more. But with a film as in your face as this, is there anywhere else to go? I live, I die, I live again! Later in the show, we'll be taking a closer look at the somewhat varied filmography of Mad Max director George Miller and some other directors who refuse to be pigeonholed. But first, joining me to discuss Mad Max Fury Road are the rest of the rabble that make up the spoiler team. A man that keeps his flamethrower attached to a pen is Andy Goulding. <laughs> and a woman that keeps her flamethrower attached to a specially adapted jazz microphone 
It's Rachel Burnett. Hey, everyone. Hi, Hello. Ooh, so, Rachel, this is a film by George Miller, who, of course, directed the Oscar-winning Happy Feet and Babe 2, Pig in the City. So this <laughs> is fun for all the family, right? Oh, no. <laughs> it's not fun for any of the family, in my opinion. But that's just my opinion. Okay, well, that's what you're here for. Don't, you know, don't, don't, don't worry about saying it. That's why we asked you to be in it. Indeed. Give us your opinion, although I, I think I know where this is going. It, I just feel like I must have missed something. I feel like I sort of watched it and thought, okay, this has been Oscar nominated. I've seen Peter Bradshaw in The Guardian, who's normally quite harsh, give it four stars. And I'm thinking, have I watched something different or am I just not seeing it? And I genuinely felt quite confused by the end that I thought, I'm not watching this properly. There's something missing in me. I'm not seeing this thing that everyone else is seeing. So I've just spent basically about a week trying to find other people who agree with me. <laughs> and do they, to... do they exist? Because yes, this was, yes, they do. They do. <laughs> um, and they feel as strongly as I do. Um, and it's strange, actually. I went onto Facebook and I implored my friends to let me know what they thought. I didn't say what I thought. I, I said, do you like it, loathe it or love it? I didn't tell them what I thought at all. And um, I got about eight or nine responses and they were literally 50%, uh, either way, hating and loving. The ones who love it, love it with a passion. They say, oh, the character development, oh, this, oh, that. And the hate ones go, it was boring. Don't know what people see in it. It is so divisive. It's unbelievable. Okay. So uh, was it was it instant or did it take a little bit of time or I mean I, I was you see, the, the funny thing is I'm pretty sure I made a note on this to, to talk to you about was I thought that especially the opening sort of five ten minutes um, there were some bits in there that, that really startled and quite frightened me and I, th- I thought perhaps with your sensitive disposition I think mm. is a nice way of putting it I yes. hope anyway <laughs> um, I, I wondered I actually wondered how far you'd get through the film because I, I, I thought you might yeah. sort of say right you know this just isn't for me which is fine just yeah. saying that, no this isn't for me it's, it's okay yeah no I must admit I always stick with a film if I start watching it and I did it sounds like I absolutely hated it and I didn't I liked it I just hate the fact it's had so much plaudits and um, yeah the beginning of it especially I, I looked up actually why it does that strange jagged kind of the frame rate's weird and it does this kind of sort of jagged thing um, and that really threw me I was like what's it doing is that my eyes or is that on the screen is, is the DVD going wrong and um, I had to look to my friend who was watching is, is this happening I went oh yeah yeah it's not just you I didn't quite see the point of that apart from making us feel a bit odd but I already felt odd enough quite frankly and it was very visceral it sort of made me feel quite peculiar so yeah I can understand why you thought mm. to ask me particularly with yeah. my sensitivity and the whole thing because it was so relentless I know some people have said to me, oh, but if you analyse it, if you look at this, that's why they did that. And the undercurrent of that is this. And I'm like, look, I was just trying to keep my head on my shoulders because it was just at me. In, mm. You said in the beginning, in my face. And it so was. It was just absolutely just bang, bang, bang all the way through. No calm apart from maybe two or three minutes here and there. And I can't, my heart can't handle it. It's like, oh my God, I haven't got time to even think or think about the interpretation or whatever. I'm just being assaulted on every level. Mm. It's funny, you know, you mentioned those sort of two, uh, two or three minutes of calm now and then. <laughs> the second time I watched this for, for for reviewing now, I was actually, it's funny, I was actually a bit disappointed that they even existed. <laughs> I thought, well, if you're going to go for it, you might as well just make it, you know, constant. Mm. But still, I'm going to lay that challenge down there to any director that just says, look, let's make an hour and a half worth of just constant mm. violence and action. Why not? Uh, Andy, now, Andy, I've, I've written down here in brackets, uh, I'm about to ask a silly question. Have you seen the originals? Um, yes, but only in the last uh, month or so. Is that 
that uh, is that sort of knowing we we're going to do this? Yeah, 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 yeah. Me I mean, too. I'm, me too. I'm not a, a fan of action films generally, but uh, I thought it would it was quite important to sort of see them for a bit of background because obviously for a lot of people who love this, it's going to be because they they love the originals and they they're happy to see it back. So I went back and watched the uh, the first three, and I found them very different films. The first one's sort of quite a nasty little sort of exploitation film didn't really like it then the second one the road warrior i thought was a brilliant film i really really enjoyed it and then the third one uh, beyond thunderdome is just mad it's stuffed with all these like things coming in from left field including tina turner and um, <laughs> so i wasn't from from those three films i wasn't sure what to expect with this one and i gotta say i found fury road to be closest in spirit to the third one beyond thunderdome in that it's just full with just mad stuff i mean that that guy with the guitar as soon as i saw him i thought what on earth is going on now? Why is he? <laughs> well, that's it. That that for me is the key almost to this. That sort of says, right, don't worry about this. It doesn't. It doesn't have to make sense. Yeah, it will be fine. <laughs> um, but well, actually, I mean, you know, things generally aren't fine. But yeah, that was a good question. It was a, a question I did want to ask because I saw the first two and I really couldn't be bothered to watch Thunderdome after that, just because <laughs> it was like I really struggled with the, the dialogue. I think more than anything, yeah. and that's what this film doesn't suffer with, isn't it? A, a dialogue. There's no. There's not. There there's, there's not <laughs> and again, it's one of these. Uh, what I'd like them, for them to have done is reduced the dialogue even mm. further. Mm. But there are there are some things here that I, th- I think that are, are quite good and that it makes it probably helps on a second viewing ratio. Now I don't think I don't think this is going to happen for you. <laughs> no, okay, you know you've been there, done that. You can say you've seen it. You stand at the water cooler at work, say, "Oh yeah, I saw that once. Mm. Awful." <laughs> uh, but um, here's the thing that I, I think there's quite a lot in there that allows you to make up your own mind about. So the bullet farmer, you know, what's his story? That guy, the accountant guy with the, the nipple rings or whatever. <laughs> what's his story? You know, you sort of make it and you actually put a lot of the plot together in your own head, mm. which is, you know, probably uh, uh, you're, you're, I'm perhaps overthinking it maybe. But it's, I, I, I quite like that on reflection of it. I sort of think, well, actually, there's a few bits in there and it really does help with a second viewing. That's interesting, actually, because one of the things that came through when I was desperately looking for what I'd missed in the forums and things was it bears repeating so many people said to me re-watch it because the first time it's just one thing by the second third fourth I'm never going to get to four I'm never going to get to two but they're saying <laughs> re-watch it and re-watch it because you find things in it but is it not a little bit like when people read poetry and the poet just wrote a poem and then you analyse it to death. Oh, oh, the poet obviously meant this. Mm. Really? Or are you just reading that into it? Was George Miller just trying to make a cool film? And everyone else is going, oh, but it's really pro-feminist. Oh, but it's this. Oh, but it's that. No, you're saying it's that. But did George Miller just want to make a cool film? Mm. <laughs> and if he wanted that, that's fine. But don't put all this heavy labelling on it. Like, oh, it's really pro-feminist and it's really this and it's really that. If that's a feminist film, then my God, we've got a long way to go. Well, yeah, that's a good point. That is definitely something I wanted to pick up on. And um, I don't know, I'm always a bit shy of like addressing the woman in the room about feminist issues. So, well, you know, we're obviously we're, I, want, I want everyone's opinion on this. That, um, well, you know, there, there are, I mean, there's a case for me where they says, well, what about Mad Max? Because this is really Charlie's Throne of Furiosa's film, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I, it, man, you just want him to have the, the, the balls just to stand up and just say, and put the woman on the front line and say, this is Furiosa. Yes, it's linked to Mad Max. Yes, this is eating up the Mad Max story. This is like the t- first two, maybe two and a half films combined or whatever the story from it. And this is a remake. But this is her story. Some fellow from, called Max just happens to be there. And it's Tom Hardy, which is always good value for everyone. But 
one thing about the film that just lets it down really and that's the introduction scene with the wives and it makes it look like uh, I think someone has described it somewhere and I can't remember who so I apologise I can't quote it about a Victoria's Secret sort of catalogue thing when you first introduce to them and they're dousing themselves with water you would almost even I think get away with the outfits they wear because it kind of fits in with them being held prisoner and this kind of thing maybe Um, but dousing themselves in water in the beginning you know and just mm. it looks like an MTV sort of uh, 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 shot where's MTV MTV's not relevant anymore is it YouTube everyone watches the music <laughs> on YouTube it's on YouTube um, so I'm going to go I'm going to go to Andy I'm not going to ask you on this question <laughs> <Damn> Andy. <it. laughs> um, Andy well I mean you know so what do you think about that you know because there, there are there are pro things about it and boy you just wish they just had that extra gump just to say right oh man just take take a little bit of that sexism out make it and actually really make it pro-feminism um, yeah I think the reason that people have gone so sort of uh, mad over well, gone mad over Mad Max uh, Fury Road to say well oh it's a it's a, it's a <laughs> feminist film and stuff is that it, it's an action film and action films don't tend to have like they, the history of of uh, sexual politics isn't the best uh, and so I think anything that has even one sort of prominent female character is going to get a positive response and I mean this has this has five positive female characters and i've written down that they're they're good-ish female characters and that they're not just token sort of female warriors so that they're not just here's another mad max but it's female so we can get away with with doing this they have kind of given them individual personalities that we don't get to explore too much but some of them are, are frightened some of them want to go back some of them want to push on so it it's it's got a fair kind of uh, a fair kind of overview of of womankind but it's i, I don't think it's a feminist film at all <laughs> and no. uh, i think i think it it's hard once you've seen that first moment that we really meet them where they're hosing each other down to really shake that image and uh, not in that way but <laughs> <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> We'll cut this. No, it's uh, <laughs> it, it's hard to to divorce divorce yourself completely from that. Yeah, I mean the the, the Vuvalani, they, they they sort of seem like really great characters. The, you know the sort of the uh, the old women at the end who kick ass and they, you know they really go for it. But you know, I, I don't know, Rachel, come on, tell me what you thought about this. Well, it's interesting you were saying about the hosing down scene. And as soon as I came on, because I knew about the pro-feminist thing, and I'd seen Charlie Theron's character, and I thought, oh, she looks kind of cool because she's got the shaved head and she's got this big black thing, and you know, she's she's mostly covered vest and trousers and stuff. A practical robotic, robotic arm, robotic right. arm, which is very cool. Wow. And um, so I thought she, as a character, was fantastic. I really liked her, and I thought, yes, if they could all be like that, superb. But um, instead they picked, well, yeah, Victoria's Secrets is pretty much right. They could all be, and they probably all are, lingerie models. Neglecting the point, and somebody made this, and I've actually printed this out, um, somebody made this point that in a society where, a patriarchal society where chastity and things were such so important, and we know this to be true, they cover their women from head to foot. You know, when chastity and all that kind of thing, and they're your possessions, you cover them from head to foot. You don't you know, put little tiny scraps of tissues on them. You also, for fertility, get women with nice rounded hips and make sure they've got plenty of weight on them so no, that they can nurture. Do you know, it's a very funny thing because I was going to make that comment, but I didn't know if it was good as oh, no, a sexist comment or not. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I, my, my, my general thought was, look, none of them had really childbearing hips, did they? Well, and, you know, the fact is that, you know, you go to, into tribes now that um, value fertility and, and, you know, it's the healthy, rounded women that are revered because they're more fertile. And that is, you know, evolution says that, they're more healthy. So that these women were breeders at all, that they'd been picked, that they were so scantily clad 
it just didn't ring true. So if that's not practical, functional and fit in with the thing, then why else are they wearing so few clothes? Hmm, maybe so we can objectify them. And it's like, no, you've already blown the whole feminist thing by having them like that in their first introduction to us. Mm. That was me gone straight away. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, no, I didn't like that. Yeah, no, I do, I I, I do understand that, and it, uh, like I said, I think it's it's, it's a, you struggle, don't you? Because they they um, the Mad Max trade, they they it would have sold, it would have sold without that, and they they, mm-hmm. they, they, yeah. they just don't get it, and no. it's, it's it's very frustrating. Uh, but hey, Tom Hardy's a cert, isn't he? Come on, <laughs> that guy. Well, I mean, well, what, what do you mean? Oh, well, no, 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 I'm not having this. <laughs> I love Tom Hardy, don't get me wrong. But no, it was interesting because in my Facebook thing, when I put to my friends, you know, who loved it, who didn't. And one of my friends from work, Joe, massive Tom Hardy fan. I mean, massive. And um, she turned it off after half an hour. No way. And she loves him. So you think she'd have watched it just to watch him. But then his face was covered from most of it with a, with a whatever the hell that was. And he didn't have an awful lot to do fair. Fair dues, really. Mm, although they do say, I mean, you know, there are some things on uh, instant IMDb that sort of say it was quite tricky to work with. Both Charlize Theron and George Miller apparently found him quite tricky to work with, which I, it's one of these things that I choose not to believe, even if it's true. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'll be the same. <laughs> <laughs> He's a uh, good lad. Yeah, That's yeah, just there. But, you know, so, um, I, I'll forgive him anything. I mean, especially after Locke. We've all seen Locke. Have you seen Locke? Mm, you I seen haven't Locke? seen Locke. Yet, no, it's very good. Right, okay. Um, right. Series three, yeah. lock. I was going to say what I was quite happy to do was at this point turn this into a lock review. If, if we'd all seen it, I was quite happy to steer oh, that corner shame. and say, right, okay, let's you know, let's, it's a game of two halves here. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, just how crazy this film is. I mean, some of the names in it, Nooks, the Dag, um, <laughs> but then actually one of the names of the the wives is called Splendid. Yes, yes, <laughs> Splendid. Yes, I've actually got a list, a cast list, which I, Me was, too. Which I tend to do when we're doing a film, and I think oh, I'll, I'll do a cast list. I can't tell you who's who. No, I did exactly the same thing. I'm looking through it going, thing. who's the organic mechanic? Who was that? The people eater? The keeper of the seeds. And the ace. And it's like, this isn't good. I don't know any of the characters. <laughs> and I've just watched a whole film not that long ago. The only character to, for me, well, there's two characters that worked. I think Furiosa worked really well. And I think Knox worked really well. He was the only character that had any kind of arc. A friend of mine said that the character development was second to none. Where the hell was that? I'm seriously like reading this going, I'm seriously watching a different film. Where was the character development? How they started in the beginning was how they ended. Nothing changed for any of them apart from the ones that were dead. And it's like, know, where's it? But um, Nooks actually did change. He started off being one thing and wanting to please his master and to go to Valhalla and blah, blah, blah. He met a girl. They knew each other for five seconds and that changed his entire outlook on life. And um, <laughs> um, through virtually nothing. And, um, and then he sacrificed himself. How amazing. But he was the best character in it. If he's the best, then oh my God. <laughs> I'm just waiting for Rachel to go, you can't handle the truth. Well, do you know what? This, this, is, this is really wonderful. I think what we need to do, for, especially for Series 3, is to uh, come up with a lot of films that Rachel's not going to see. That's not fair. <laughs> okay, so while we, uh, while we all uh, maybe take a, a breath and a drink of water. Sorry. Maybe. No, 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 absolutely not. Uh, okay, we're going to take a break, but uh, later Andy will be taking a look at the diverse career of Mad Max director George Miller, along with some other directors who can't be pinned down. Now that's all after this short break. Now, this is the slightly awkward bit of the show where we pass the hat around. Making a podcast isn't expensive, but there are some costs we need to cover. And to be honest, it would also be nice to have a few quid to keep us supplied with coffee and vegan biscuits. 
You can help the show by visiting our webpage, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, clicking on the donate button and giving whatever you think we're worth. Alternatively, if you're planning on buying anything from Amazon, you can do that via the links on our website and we get a few pennies each time. So that's spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Or you can help us out for free and get yourself an audiobook of your choice into the bargain by signing up for a free 30-day trial with Audible via the link on our website. Audible have the world's largest selection of audiobooks, including Blade Runner by Philip K. Dick. You can cancel your membership at any time within the 30 days and you won't pay a penny, but you still get to keep your free audiobook. We get a few quid each time someone signs up via our link, which will help keep our producer Johnny supplied with studio time for his promising rap career. Now, back to the show. We go back? Hmm. Back? Yeah. I thought you weren't insane anymore. So we're back and we're reviewing Mad Max Fury Road. Let's get to the hero of the story. Maybe, maybe the hero, maybe not uh, Max, because this is after all called Mad Max. Um, and he, he does, you know, he does take his time to get sort of into it. Now, there's, um, it does seem like a very fallible character, doesn't he? There's a lot, you know, he's not like a superhero, Andy, where, um, you know, they, 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 they tend to always win, maybe have one uh, fall down sort of three quarters of the way before the movie and then win it in the final act. Quite a lot of the time he's sort of found wanting, isn't he? You know, he sort of, uh, he can't make shots in the dark with a with a laser sight, whereas Furiosa can. Um, you know, he's, he's, for a lot of the first part of the film, he's tied to a truck with blood seeping out of him. So, you know, he's not he's not the ultimate hero, is he? Uh, no, not at all. And he's, he's not even really a hero. He's, he's an anti-hero because, I mean, there are parts like when when he was obviously just going to leave the wives in the desert and fend for himself and that's a big a big part of Mad Max is that he's a in the first film he lost everything his wife and his child and since then he he is mad and and he's just out for sort of survival and for himself and yeah we uh we see him. He makes some some concessions, and he, he's generally on the side of good. But his his survival comes before everything else. Uh, but this this was a uh, something that I only really knew from having watched the early films and seen the other characters. Because a big problem that I had uh, with the film, and uh, I should say that I, I quite liked it. I didn't absolutely hate it. Uh, but it's interesting that Rachel said one of her friends switched off after the first half hour. I would say to her that she she should go back and, and watch it from there because I think it picks up a little bit because that's the point where it finally slows down and gives us some information. I think it starts with its foot too much on the gas pedal right from the beginning. So we're just straight into this action and... I'm, I'm sort of looking at it going, well, why do I care what happens to any of these people? And I'm I'm not sure who half of them are and I don't know... Which- I don't know why I want that person to get away or that person to catch that person or anything. And I think it's, it's particularly in sort of modern day action films, it's they have a real tendency to hit you straight away with with a big, fast-paced action sequence. And uh, I, I don't like that as much as... I think we touched on it in a, in a previous show. That in the 80s, a lot of action films, they used to have this slow build-up and then give you the action. And that was die to give you the character. Die hard, nothing happens. I mean, nothing happens <laughs> in the... In the first half an hour, yeah, but we, we're seeing like we're seeing the dynamic between him and his wife and things like that, exactly, which exactly. are important. It makes you care about it when for it later happens, on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, if, if you get you, yeah, it's it draws audiences in, but you've only really got them on the level of a fireworks display. It's just sort of like ooh, ah, explosions and things. And I was sat watching that first half hour, and there's there's one shot that it, it came out, and you can just see like the whole convoy just going across the desert. And I thought at that moment, if that big foot off the opening credits of Monty Python came down now and went, 
I wouldn't feel anything except mild relief. And that it was really important to me to feel something. So when they finally stopped and we met the wives once they'd hosted each other down, and then we we sort of got a bit more of what was going on, I, I cared slightly more. I mean, there wasn't a great deal of, of character development, but... Th- I, I had a bit more to go on and a bit more to care about once they'd taken their foot off the accelerator. Mm, but at that, that point, just before they take the foot off the accelerator, is a brilliant, I think, a really, really well-executed fight scene with the car door and the fact that those two guys are chained together and, uh, you know, they're trying to trying to get the um, the things that are going to snip the chains and all that kind of thing. I think that is really well choreographed, really well. It was it was funny, it was entertaining, it was made you wince, you know, when they, when they got smacked. And it really looked like they got smacked as well, uh, smacked about the place. And I thought that was really, Good. He would not do that, Rachel. No, actually, no. It sounds like I absolutely hated it. I like it as an action film. I think the practical effects were incredible, considering ninety percent of it was practical and mm. not computer graphics. I mean, amazing. Yeah, but when we when we Great quiz when scenes. we quiz about the Oscars, and I think we've all got that question mark yeah. over head over ten Oscars. Yeah, and I think they are all sort of in the more uh, technical. Well, you think so? Best picture. Yeah, is, is one of them. Not, is it? Yep. It's true. Exactly. That's one. Makes me go. What? <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, again, I'd be fine if it was being nominated for special effects sound editing which it is um and only these things because technically i'm going to say it's amazing it is really good but then you don't mix anything like that with a woman a heavily pregnant woman getting smushed under some car doors and then having a cesarean with a dead baby being pulled out of her you you can't put those two things together you're either making a rollicking good movie that's really good fun and that you can watch and go ha look at that man with the guitar that's brilliant wow those effects are incredible or you make a really touching film that touches on the effects of apocalypse and dystopia and sexism and rape and prostitution and all these things that were in there that were really heavy. And then you have a man on a, on a rig with a guitar. So make up your mind, either this is serious or it's not. Mm. If it's not, it's great. If it is... It's not good. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder now what certificate it was. It, was, it must be a fifteen. It's fifteen. It's fifteen. Yeah. Got to be a fifteen, isn't it? But uh, yeah, I was going to say there though. I, I still think it, they should have made it a silent film. You know, as in just just with the music and the uh, and the heavy metal and the drums and uh, <laughs> that would have been really good. Yeah, yeah just yeah, just just the, the soundtrack going through it. So there's an idea for. For George Miller. Uh, now, with many movie directors, their name above the title gives you a pretty good idea of what to expect. But others, like Mad Max director George Miller, are a little less predictable. Andy has been taking a look at some of the more surprising directorial gear changes. Australia's George Miller must surely have one of the most bizarre filmographies of any director. Having begun his career with the Mad Max trilogy, a series of violent dystopian nightmares which one critic described as having all the emotional uplift of Mein Kampf. Miller eventually went on to write and produce family favourites Babe and its sequel Babe Pig in the City, which he also directed. Miller followed this with the even fluffier Happy Feet films, computer animations about a group of dancing penguins, Immediately afterwards, he returned to the Mad Max franchise, with Mad Max Fury Road reportedly being the first in a new trilogy. Fleet-footed aquatic birds and post-apocalyptic savagery might seem like strange bedfellows, although having sat through Happy Feet, I'd gladly see the two combined. But Miller's bold stylistic shifts are not unprecedented. Enfant terrible Robert Altman, director of MASH and Nashville, shocked film fans when in 1980 he set aside his subversive, naturalistic ensemble pieces 
direct a live-action musical based on the cartoon character Popeye. Oakman could never have been described as predictable, but even by his standards, Popeye was unexpected. Sitting oddly alongside his anti-authoritarian black comedies and revisionist genre films of the 70s. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. Sidney Lumet, another director known for making some of the most highly regarded films of all time, including 12 Angry Men, Dog Day Afternoon and Network. I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore! Say what you wanna, but I'm here to Also bamboozled his audience when in 1978 he directed The Wiz, an urban reimagining of The Wizard of Oz, starring Diana Ross as Dorothy and Michael Jackson as the Scarecrow. Neither film was well received, critically or commercially, although the diversity of both directors' catalogues allowed them to absorb the blow without too much damage. Changing stylistic tack is perhaps a riskier move for directors who are heavily associated with a particular genre. In 1984, John Carpenter, known primarily for horror films like Halloween, The Fog and The Thing, made a concerted effort to break from his restrictive reputation when he chose to direct Starman, a science fiction romance in which an alien assumes the form of a widow's dead husband in order to elicit her help in getting back to his home planet. Starman received critical acclaim on its release and Jeff Bridges was Oscar nominated for his portrayal of the alien, making this Carpenter's only film to be recognised by the Academy. But Starman didn't sit completely at odds with Carpenter's work as he had previously directed both sci-fi and action-adventure films. Far more unexpected was Wes Craven's Music of the Heart, a sentimental drama from a director inextricably linked with the horror genre. Craven is perhaps best known for the Nightmare on Elm Street films, but he experienced a critical and commercial resurgence in the mid-90s with the Scream franchise. Given the popularity of Scream and Scream 2, Scream 3 was inevitable. Less inevitable was Craven's decision to take time out between the two sequels to direct a film about a schoolteacher's struggle to teach the violin to inner-city Harlem kids. Music of the Heart received mixed reviews, but was also nominated for two Oscars, the only Oscar nominations of Craven's long and distinguished career. For horror directors, then, the lesson seems to be that a change in genre is the only way to win an Academy Award. Although, thankfully, neither Carpenter or Craven were awards-hungry enough to forsake what they did best in their subsequent work. The hugely popular ongoing series of films based on Marvel Comics superheroes has managed to maintain a very high standard of quality by employing some of the brightest talents in the industry as directors. Inspired choices include The Usual Suspect's Brian Singer to helm the X-Men films, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Firefly's Joss Whedon to write and direct the Avengers films, and, in a choice surely influenced more by the love of a good pun than anything else, 500 Days of Summer's Mark Webb to direct the Amazing Spider-Man films. But few could have predicted the choice of Kenneth Branagh to direct 2011's Thor. Better known for Shakespearean adaptations like Henry V and Hamlet, or lovey fests like Peter's Friends and In the Bleak Midwinter, Branagh's touch is largely undetectable in his tale of the hammer-wielding superhero god, although he clearly enjoyed the experience enough to stick with the action genre for his next film, the poorly received Jack Ryan's Shadow Recruit. Although they often take us by surprise as an audience, stylistic shifts are part of what keeps the experience of film so exciting, 
and a sign of the willingness to experiment that is essential to the truly effective artist. It is a constant source of delight that Robert Rodriguez can direct both From Dust Till Dawn and Spy Kids, that Wolfgang Peterson can follow Das Boot with The Neverending Story, or that the same Jerry Zucker directed both The Naked Gun and Ghost. Although these wrong footings may only occur intermittently, they ensure that we never become jaded as cinema goers. So, as always, thanks very much, Andy, for doing that for us. So, well, he gets the ending of the film now, and this is the whole reason we're here. We're called Spoiler. We can spoil the ending. Um, did you... Uh, you didn't really care about the ending, did you? I really didn't. <laughs> did you, did you? And isn't that a major failing? I didn't care when Furiosa got to the Green and Pleasant Land and they found the Green and Pleasant Land wasn't there anymore and she broke down in tears. I was like, hmm, whatever. And then... Um, <laughs> I didn't care. And then, and then um, they turn around and go back. And then turn around and just do the same thing again. At the man's suggestion. How is that pro-feminist? And, um, no, no, good point. It, it, was Mad Max's suggestion? Otherwise, all the women would have just gone blindly into the salt. And it's like, yeah, but it took a man to see sense. Anyway, that's another rant. So they're doing the same thing back where they've already been with the same characters we've already seen. We have Nooks, which is great, but he doesn't last five minutes. And then they get back to the original place we started. And it turns out that the only thing that needs to happen to change everything is just to kill one person, to kill that main guy. What's his name again? Morton Joe or something? That's the fella. That's the one. I was thinking, oh, can you just slit his throat at the beginning and then just say you are? You'd have done it. Mm. You only need to kill one man. Because even though this man appeared to have some kind of supernatural power over this entire village of people, all it took was him to be dead. And all of a sudden, they don't revere him anymore. They're not scared of the fact that he's dead. That power just seems to be just, it's just gone. And we know that Furiosa is a mean shot with a, yeah, a so rifle. She so, you know, yeah, shot him. Gone, done. No film. Hurrah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then Mad Max goes and leaves them as well with not so much as a buy or leave. I was kind of underwhelmed by the ending, if I'm honest. Great that the women were lifted up on the pedestal and the whole new world was going to begin. But let's not forget it was Mad Max's suggestion to turn around and... You know, he sort of did, yes, my work here is done, and then work, walked away. Like, it was him that did all of it, and it was like, oh, whatever. What got me was a, a slight technical point on the fact that they were going to go over the salt marshes for, what, about 100 days? I can't remember how many days. Yeah. It might have been 10, it might have been 100. Um, but either way, they were only going to get an afternoon's worth of juice out of those motorbikes they were on, weren't they? So, you know, it, it, either way. Andy, um, it, it, there's going to be another, isn't there? There's got to be another. There's kind of money uh, yeah. involved. Yeah, definitely. I think they said they're going to do another trilogy. And that was. <laughs> we don't. We don't have to watch them all. I know we um, do. <laughs> um, but that was for me. Uh, what was very unconvincing for anyone who's, who's talked about character development. When when you get to the end and they've they've been through all this and they've they've won their battle and then suddenly Max just goes all mysterious and moves on again. And that to me, I don't think. That's very consistent. It's just, well, we need him to be that way for the sequel. So here we go. He's more about kind of getting by and surviving. And I think if he saw, glimpsed this this chance of consistent survival, he would have stayed on with the women and uh, probably set himself up as some kind of uh, patriarch. (laughs) Okay, so we get to rating time now. Um, You like this one. (laughs) Okay, so uh, your ratings uh, for Mad Max Fury Road. Is it George Miller? Johnny Lee Miller, <laughs> Sienna Miller, and I'm particularly happy with this one, Windy Miller. <laughs> uh, Rachel, I'm going to go to you first. Uh, just because I know it puts pressure on you, you can never make your mind about no, this. No, I'm terrible, I'm really indecisive. Uh, and also, I like, I like this because it depends on whether you think, well, is Johnny Lee Miller? Well, probably not. Uh, Sienna Miller, uh, she's got a lot better, hasn't she? Yes, she so, true. 
you know, it, it all depends on your viewpoint of these things, doesn't it? It can tell you so much about this rating system, can't it? I think it depends on how I'm looking at it. If I'm looking at it as just an action film and trying to ignore all the hype, I'd say it's Sienna Miller. But if I'm looking at it as a potential Oscar winner, it's a definite Windy Miller. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd have to agree, but I'd I'd say that it's it's the, my main memory of Windy Miller is that he always used to come out of that windmill and th- those sails would just miss his head. <laughs> so I think it, it's probably Windy Miller on the day that he mistimed it and, <laughs> and got his head knocked clean off. Brilliant. I I couldn't I couldn't put that better. I I, I see. I was hoping you to go for something else, and I could say Windy Miller. Uh, if I say Windy Miller, it seems like I'm copying you. So I'm going to say Johnny Lee Miller, uh, just because uh, I spent time looking his name up on Wikipedia, <laughs> um, find out what he's been up to lately. Um, so there we go. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you very much for listening. And we'll leave you with the genial poetry of Andy Goulding. As something of a quiet man and steadfast pacifist. There aren't too many action films on my top 100 list. You're less likely to find one in my DVD collection than 1940s comedies or Swedish introspection. I'm not that fond of gunplay and I don't like big explosions. I'm more a fan of dialogue and impalpable emotions. I like Mad Max on Fury Road, but find it much more pleasant to spend time with mild-mannered Max on nagging ennui crescent. But just because my tastes tend more towards the esoteric does not mean I'm some awful snob who spits on the generic. The thrilling scope of cinema is glorious and wide. Why snarl across some ill-defined superfluous divide and call each other snobs because of unshared personal preference? Respect our human difference and display a little deference. Sometimes I like a can of beer, sometimes a glass of bourbon. So viva sliced alone and yippee kaye Ingmar Bergman. You've been listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher. We don't need another hero. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to support us, you can go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, click on the donate button and give us whatever you think we're worth. You can also sign up for a free 30-day trial with Audible and get yourself a free audiobook by going to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and clicking on the Audible trial banner on the left-hand side. Now, alternatively, if you're planning on buying anything from Amazon, do it via the links on our website and we'll get a few pennies commission to help us keep us supplied with the coffee and vegan biscuits. Or you can help us out by simply telling your friends about us, sharing links to our show or writing a nice review on iTunes. Next time on Spoiler, we're heading to the year 2044 in Ernest Cline's dystopian book, Ready Player One. You were born at a pretty crappy time in history, and it looks like things are only going to get worse from here on out. If you'd like to contact us about that or anything else, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Find us on Twitter or Facebook or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hall and is a Joe Schmo production. The show was recorded at the studios of Siren FM in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln. A creepy place with all the crows. Whoa!